So these are precious truths that Christ has redeemed us from our sin, and we do come to you bringing nothing but our corruption, our guilt, our foulness, as the song said. We come to you hopeless to do anything to improve ourselves, to rid ourselves from the stain and guilt of sin to which we came into this world, but all the more we delight in in your grace who Though we are thoroughly corrupted, we have been made new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new in Christ, in whose life we share, whose righteousness, in whose righteousness we stand, in whose glory we delight in, and in whose return we hope for. And in conformity, our Lord, to your resurrection body is what we long for. So as we look at your word just briefly today and prepare our hearts to come to your table, teach us, Holy Spirit, you are the teacher from heaven. Unfold to us the glories of Christ on the pages of scripture. Teach us wisdom, and we look to you for all of these things in the name of him who died and rose again for us. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Ecclesiastes, as we're getting very near to the end of it, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we're going to finish what we began last week and looking at verses 1 through 10. So Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 10. Let me uh, introduce this passage by simply reminding us or by noting that the world is full of contradictions and paradoxes. And by this, I do not mean merely the world outside of us, but our own experience of the world. We have the reality of delightful experiences of God's justice and God's goodness, and yet that is mixed with the realities of injustices in the world and the corruption of sin that remains within us. We have the realities of God's goodness in creation and the enjoyments and pleasures of all the things that he has given to us to enjoy and to be blessed with. And yet we see as well the corruption of these things, not only in our own hearts, but the world around us. We see our best laid plans sometimes come to fruition and happen as we intend them to. And then we see many frustrations that come as well, where things don't always work as it seems like they should, and certainly as we expect them to. And, and then at the end of all of that, we have all of the promises of blessings in this world, and yet we have the reality of death that is the equalizer to everything. And that really is the theme of Solomon. That this world is ultimately, with all of its glories and all of the glimmers and shimmers and remainders and vestiges of its original glory at creation, is yet a world under the corruption of sin. It's a world doomed to come to an end. And our very own lives, with all of their highs and lows, will all end in the same place, the grave. And we'll return to dust from which we came, which Solomon says explicitly, drawing from the imagery of Genesis chapter 3. And so life is full of paradoxes, full of contradictions. We see them around us. We experience them in our lives. And Solomon causes us to look at them head on, but not merely to be lost in despair, but to look beyond them to the promises of God. And and that isn't always so evident in Ecclesiastes directly. Sometimes we have to put Ecclesiastes within the context of the entire covenant scriptures, the entire revelation of God to see where ultimately he points us. But we do that this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 as he's bringing to a summary all of the points he's been rolling around over and over and looking at different angles throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So let me read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll briefly review last week and then pick it up in verses 7 through 10 this morning. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 10, beginning in verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things 
So sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many, and everything that is to come will be futility." Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart, and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting." And such is the wisdom of God through Solomon. Now, we noted last week, just by review, in verses 1 through 6, this general point, namely that wisdom balances uncertainty and responsibility in light of God's providence. Wisdom finds the balance between what is uncertain in life and our responsibility yet to live life under the providence of God. Wisdom marks the clear path down the middle of those two seemingly contradictory things. And we noted first that, that he tells us then not to, not to invest ourselves completely and put all of our effort, put all of our resources, put all of our energy, put, put all of our opportunities into one locale. In other words, to put ourselves widely, to invest ourselves widely, to invest our resources widely. Why? Because again, we live under the reality that the future is uncertain. That is wise. He said earlier in chapter 10 that the fool is the one who, who claims to know the future, but in fact, he doesn't because only God holds that in his hand. So therefore, it is wisdom to live in this world with the understanding that misfortune, as he says in verse 2, may occur on the earth. And so we invest ourselves broadly. We step out in faith. We are not to be idle. We are not to be living in fear. We are not to be reserved with all of the resources and opportunities that God gives us. And yet as we do that, then we live in reality. That's verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. And he says, so why we live with an optimism, why we live with a, a sober view of life in this world, we live also with a realism that, and we deal with life as it comes. We don't try to sugarcoat it or make it something other than it is. And we don't want then this realism of life under the sovereign hand of God to, again, produce ineptness, to produce laziness, to produce fear, as he addresses in verse 4. That would be a wrong response to the realities of misfortune in this world. Rather, we are to move forward. We are to act responsibly, knowing that ultimately it's God's providence that is working behind the scenes. And that's really where we ended last week in verse 5. Just as God is working in the womb of a pregnant woman, and again, obviously, this is something that would be an, uh, an illustration more apropos to them in the sense now we can have, can have uh, machines that we can look inside the womb, but, but they did not have those then. And so the idea is, though, that when a woman is pregnant, a baby is being formed in the womb, and there's no idea how that is being formed, but God is doing something. And here the point is this, the analogy is this, that though we cannot see the hand of God in everything that he's doing, he is doing something. Everything that he brings about has a purpose. There is a reason that he is doing whatever he's doing. And while we do not understand, he does. And so we are to trust him and not be idle, verse 6, but to go out, make our investment, and then see what God will bring of it. Psalm 127 says he gives to his beloved in his sleep. And therefore, it is pointless to go out and labor as if everything depended on us and to put all our hope in our labor, but rather we labor and put our hope in God, and that's the way that we live. And the ultimate expression of that is our understanding of this spread of the kingdom itself and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he takes our feeble efforts in evangelism and living our lives here in a way that will glorify God, and he brings fruit from them. We never know what God is doing, but we do know this, the promise that God will build his church and one day make all things right. 
And with that, we come to verse 7 through 10. And we'll title that this, uh, we'll summarize it in this way. Wisdom also balances pleasure in light of vanity and God's judgment. Uh, Wisdom balances pleasure in light of vanity and God's judgment. So wisdom balances uncertainty and responsibility in light of God's providence. And next, he causes us then to look at the balance between pleasure and God's judgment. And again, this is verses 7 through 10. And he notes first then that letting the enjoyment of God's good gifts swallow sorrow. And that's in verses 7 through 8. He says, the light is pleasant and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the, day, and let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Let enjoyment of God's good gifts swallow sorrow. Indeed, that opening statement of verse 7 is delightful in and of itself. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. This is a wonderful and delightful statement. The idea is this, that God has filled the world with delights and good things, and it is good to the soul to see these good things that God has given and to enjoy them on earth with the life that he has given to us. In other words, we would say this sometimes, or we hear this statement, it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. Now, that's striking if we've been following along in Ecclesiastes because at first glance, at first reading of that, that could seem actually to be a contradiction to Solomon himself and to the very themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. At first glance, it may seem to be a contradiction with what he said back in chapter 8 where he tells us this, that, well... I wrote down the wrong reference. But the idea of of the theme of Ecclesiastes is that there is one who has been given joy and one who has been excluded from the joy that God has given. Actually, verse 5. Go back there. He says this, What I've seen under to be good and fitting to eat and drink and enjoy oneself and all his life. He says, as for every man, in verse 19 of chapter 5, to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward uh, in his labor. But then he goes on and he says in chapter 6, that if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not have a proper burial, then I say, better is the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It's better off. It is better off than he. In other words, here he seems then in chapter 6, 5 and 6, to to emphasize the betterness or the blessing or the better situation of dying young or of never having entered into the world to experience all of its pains and its sorrows. Is he contradicting that? Or it seems like he could be contradicting what he said in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. He says that those who are oppressed and have no one to comfort them, he says in response to that in verse 2, so I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than those who are still living. So which is it? is it? Is it a commendation of life in this world and a blessing of life in this world? Or is it better to have never even entered into the world? Is Solomon confused? And believe it or not, there are some commentators, even fairly conservative ones, that, that identify Solomon as just sort of randomly going through and contradicting himself, of responding without much thought to these inconsistencies of life and even stepping over his own teaching. They would say as well, how do we fit this commendation of life and the goodness of God to the living with the very theme of futility and vanity, which he'll draw our attention to again, even in this passage. He realized that after indulging in everything this world has to offer, Solomon did, all of its pleasure, all of its power, all of its accomplishments, that he ultimately found no joy in them, and that it was vain. By contrast, he says here that life is not vain. Life is full of good things. The light is pleasant, and it's good for the eyes. Indeed, if a man should leave many, live many years, let him rejoice in them all. How do we put these two things together? The idea is simply this. 
When these things of the world, and again, Solomon has made this point over and over, are seen as ends in themselves, when they're sought to be the source of ultimate satisfaction, then they are disappointing. There is no fruit in them. There is only discouragement. He said back in chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with his income. This is vanity. But when these things are held in their proper place as good gifts of God, then we can know the enjoyment of them. And in fact, we should rejoice in them. So the idea here is then this. Enjoy the beauties and delights of creation. Enjoy food. Enjoy friends. Enjoy relationships. Enjoy activities. Enjoy learning new things. Enjoy marriage. Enjoy the blessing of children. Enjoy work. Enjoy rest. Enjoy all of the good things that God has given us in creation, for this is the will of God. Paul said it this way to Timothy. God, when he is our hope, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so he exhorts us here to rejoice in them all. God is not a killjoy. God is not miserly in his blessings. God is not stingy. God is, in fact, a God of great generosity with all of the good things of creation. In fact, it's God's goodness, his beauty, and generosity evident in creation that bears witness to him. And we have traced that out before, and we won't. But it is a very witness to mankind, the very fullness and the flourishing and the opportunities that God gives to all of those who live in his earth. So glimmers of glory and flourishing shine through, just enough to give us a taste of the original glory and goodness of the garden. However, this is not yet heaven on earth. And so while we are to enjoy life, he tempers this, with, again, the reminder that life is short. Look again in the middle of verse 8. And note that we are not to forget in the enjoyment of this world that it is temporary. That is temporary. He says, after exhorting us to rejoice in them all, all the good days that God, all the days that God gives us, he says, let him also remember this, that the days, the days of darkness, for they will be many, everything that is to come will be futility. So in the enjoyment of life, we must remember that it also includes days of darkness, and there are many of them. And again, this is a note of realism that he always pulls us back to. There is the goodness of God in creation, and yet it's still a world groaning under the burden of sin. Now, what does he mean here by the reference to days of darkness? Well, there's two primary ways you could take this. Days of darkness could be seen in this way. It could be referring exclusively to the reality of death. In other words, enjoy life, but remember that death is the end of it all. And those days will be many, then would be a reference possibly to the duration of death is longer than the duration of life. That life is short, death is permanent. And so therefore, remember in all of your enjoyment of this world that death is the end for all men. It could also be taken in this way, that darkness refers to the discouragements, the disappointments, the uncertainty, the turn of fortunes uh, that we all experience in this world. That it is a life that is, a, that is life in a world that is still under the fall. And therefore, the darkness is the inevitable troubles that will attend us in this world as we head to the inevitable realities of old age. Really, you could emphasize either one, but both fit the reality of Ecclesiastes and bring us face to face with this one reality. Again, sin has brought death, corruption, and injustice into this world. And therefore, as he says at the end of verse 8, everything is futility. And in a sense, then, this statement captures everything that has driven Solomon's perspective of the world up to this point. And again, here is the key. When it is viewed in and of itself, as an end in itself, without reference to the ultimate end of all things, which is God himself. So the reality of death and corruption, of sin and creation, puts everything in perspective. And here he reminds us of that. This world can never be the ultimate barometer of meaning and significance because it's not everything that God intended it to be, and nor are we. 
to everything accomplished in this world from the vantage point of this world alone is ultimately futile and no real value than himself. You can be wise, build up a kingdom, and it's lost. You can make a fortune, a turn of events takes it all away. You can pursue wisdom and act wisely, and one act of foolishness can ruin it all. This world is not what it should be, and if we make it at its ultimate value, then it will only disappoint. And thirdly, this world is groaning under the curse of sin, and so sin's corruption, corrupt, corrupting nature has consigned it to futility and ultimately judgment. But again, this doesn't lead to despair. It's the realism of life under a fallen world, but it's not to lead to despair. It doesn't mean that there's no joy, that there's no delight. It simply means this, that the joy and delight can only become experienced as the blessing of God, again, when it's not an end of itself, but is received as the gift of God. The temporary nature of these things only kills enjoyment when we put too much value on them. That's when they kill enjoyment. Again, he who seeks money will never be satisfied with money. Fill in the blank whatever it is that one would seek as an end in itself. They only are disappointing the futile nature of this world, the end of all things, when we give it more meaning and significance than we should. But when they're kept in proper place, then it ends in the praise and the enjoyment of God. And that's where he takes us next. Have joy in light of accountability. And this is where I'm trying to get to. In verse 9, then, he says this. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And so, in short, have joy in this world, but in light of accountability. Have joy, but in light of accountability. And this is a striking statement again. Essentially, he's saying, give your heart completely to enjoy what your heart desires. Give your heart completely to what your heart desires. Pursue what your eyes delight in and give yourself to take in all of the opportunities for pleasure that you are able. That's the idea of it. Follow the impulses or ways of your heart. Follow the things that your eyes see that you desire. This is the will of God. You know, some ask, how do I know the will of God for my life? And the short answer is this. Be diligent to know his revealed will, walk in obedience to him, and then do what you want, trusting God. That's the will of God. That's how we know. We can't know the future, as is made clear. We can't know what the outcome will be. God is working some kind of purpose, but it's so often hidden to us. Therefore, we move forward with righteous desires according to righteousness as revealed in his word. We trust him and then leave the results to him. That's how we determine what God would desire us to do and all of those things that aren't explicit when we think of who to marry, what job to take, where to live, so on and so forth. Live a holy life and then do what you want. Now that being said, this again is striking. It's very startling to us to find this kind of commendation in Scripture. I mean, this could be taken out of context and seen just here as, a, as an exhortation to hedonism to self-indulgence. It could be seen as encouraging the idea of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or even more, that foolish mantra that we hear from childhood on in every Disney movie, which is what? Do you know it? Follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. We hear that over and over. Follow your heart. And we see the ultimate expression of that kind of thinking where in the world that we live in now, in the culture that we live in now, the highest virtue is what? Be true to yourself. That's the highest act of righteousness. Be true to yourself. Not true to yourself under any kind of objective reality or objective standard, but be true to yourself as I subjectively view myself, as I determine reality to be myself, even if it defies everything that I can see around me, even in my very own body. Be true to yourself 
is the mantra of our culture. That is the highest virtue. Or worst of all, in seeing this, in reading this from Solomon, it could be seen to stand in contradiction to the warning of John in 1 John, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Is this in contradiction to those things? Of course not. And we know it's not contradictory, first of all, because those who remember our hermeneutics, Scripture does not contradict Scripture. It has one author and he speaks with one voice, ultimately the Holy Spirit who has given us the God-breathed scriptures. But beyond this, it's not a contradiction because of context. Why is Solomon not contradicting these things when he says, follow the desires of your heart, the impulses of your heart, the desires of your eyes? Well, 1 John is not addressing the legitimate pleasures of this world, but those that appeal to the sinful flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful desires of the life. He says, those are the things that we cannot love, that we cannot pursue. Those things that are, in fact, designed not by God to bring glory to him, but are used and perverted by the devil to cause us to turn away from God. As a matter of fact, that is the very idea of spiritual death. Among them, we all too lived formerly in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But doesn't Solomon tell us to follow the desires of our heart and of our eyes? And here, Paul says that the very idea of spiritual death is that we live in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. No, it is... It is those selfish desires, it is those lusts that appeal to the flesh that John is warning against. That is not Solomon's exhortation, as we'll see. The things of this world, and this is where we struggle sometimes in some ways, are not in and of themselves, so many of the things that are are used for evil purposes are not in and of themselves evil. And sometimes, we again, we do have a hard time uh, the, and the church has a hard time managing that. And there, it tends to err in one side or the other to say it's all bad, so therefore we're going to err on the side of asceticism, self-denial. We're going to do everything we can not to have a good time. Or we can end on the other side and say everything is about having a good time. Everything is to be enjoyed with almost no restraint at all. But Solomon points us down the middle of that road of balance. The things in this world that are misused are in and of themselves not evil. If we could boil it down to money, sex, and power are not evil in themselves. They're only evil when they become idolatrous, and that's the warning of John and and Paul in Ephesians. When they replace contentment in God. How do you know if something's become an idol in your life? When it replaces in God. That's how you know. Power is not evil in itself. It can be used for good or bad. Solomon has just caused us to think about this in chapter 10. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time. But woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. In other words, power when used without a sense of responsibility and for self-indulgence is bad. It brings harm. It brings negligence, and it brings destruction. Power, when when used with a sense of responsibility, is good for the people over which that power is exercised. When responsibility supersedes privileges, then the privileges can be truly truly and righteously enjoyed. Sexual pleasure is not evil in itself. It is a blessing of God. It becomes evil only when taken out of the context of God's design, and then it becomes ruinous, as in Solomon's life. In the right context of the covenant of marriage, the pleasures and enjoyment of a husband and wife are to be pursued. In chapter 9, he says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Money in itself is not evil, and wealth is not evil. It can be a blessing of God, and it can be used for good when put in its proper place. And so as we read Ecclesiastes and these statements of Solomon, this is a footnote here, he's not, again, giving us A self-help book. He's not saying merely that the end is satisfaction in earthly things. That would, again, be to miss the whole point. He's writing this 
as the king of Israel, as the leader in a covenant nation of God. So ultimately, when he says, follow the desires of your eyes and the impulses of your heart and to enjoy these things, he's saying that as a member of the covenant community of God. And these things then could never be, or should never be seen then apart from the reality of living in harmony with God's righteousness and grace. When God is the end of all these things, it's good. We can have this command and follow this exhortation with the freedom that God intended. Let me give you one verse, I think, that captures this. And this is in Isaiah. He says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near. That really captures the idea of what Solomon says. Don't look for the satisfaction in this world. Don't spend your days and your energy in life looking for the things that can be only temporary. But remember that you are a part of the covenant community of God. And the pursuit of this joy and the exhortation to pursue the desires of your heart is realized in their intention only when your desires and your joys and your pursuits are framed, constrained, and shaped by righteousness and the love and the fear of God. Then, do what you want is the idea. Pursue the things that you desire. Take a hold of all of the opportunities that God gives you. And as he said earlier in chapter 9, for God has already approved of your works. He created this world to be enjoyed, and as long as it's enjoyed under his, under his, the reality of him and his righteousness, then enjoy them fully. But then secondly, he takes us to another constraint, another way that he hems in the unrestrained expression of this. First is to realize that God is the end of all of them. This is within the covenant community of God. We'll come back to that. But then he says this at the end of verse 9. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. Now again, this could seem to be a contradiction. And it's amazing that some see it this way. They think that he contradicts himself in the same verse. But he's not doing that at all. He's not bringing confusion, but actually clarity. And the confusion could see for to read that wrongly could be as though he's giving something and then taking it away, saying, hey, go out and enjoy everything, but remember, you're going to be judged for it. It's almost like some would see that he's saying, hey, go out and enjoy this world, enjoy all of its pleasures, but know that all of those pleasures, God's going to judge you for them. Solomon isn't confused. He isn't confused. The point is simply this. Enjoy the good things, especially in the prime of life, with all of the optimism and opportunities and vigor of youth. But remember this, you will give an account to God, and here is the key, for how you enjoy them. For how you enjoy them. That's the key. That's the distinction. Enjoy them, but be careful how you enjoy them. Pursue them, but be careful for why you pursue them and what you expect from them. He's commending righteous pleasures, righteous enjoyment, because we will be judged by a righteous standard. One said it this way. This means that everything we do and everything we decide matters for eternity. How we spend our money, what we do with our bodies, the way we use our time, what we decide about our future, how we handle our relationships, what we touch, taste, hear, and see, all of this matters to our judge and therefore ought to matter to us as well. That's the idea. That's the idea. Enjoy these things, but realize that you will encounter the judgment of God. But then that brings up another question. What judgment is he talking about, and what is the standard of judgment? What judgment is he talking about, and what is the standard of judgment? How do we enjoy these things? with the clear conscience and with all of the goodness and the blessing of God and and not live in a constant fear that we might be enjoying them wrongly or for the wrong reason. So what judgment is he talking about and what is the standard of judgment? First, regarding the standard of judgment, remember, again, this is the covenant people of God. 
This is the people who God redeemed out of Egypt with a mighty hand in his judgments on Egypt as he freed his people from their bondage. Of course, reminding them that their freedom was an act of grace. God's redeeming them was an act of grace, which was shown in the very Passover itself. They were no more righteous than the Egyptians. As a matter of fact, God's going to say, I was angry with this generation, and they were going to all die in the wilderness. They're not worthy to come in. This was an act of grace. They were no more righteous. They merely were the ones on whom God's electing love has been set, and therefore he redeemed them as a nation. Israel is my firstborn. Israel is my firstborn, but he is the one who redeemed them out to show that he is God. He redeemed them out of Egypt with his mighty right hand. He brought them through the Red Sea. He led them to Mount Sinai where he thundered and dark clouds swirled around the mountains and he gave them the ten words, the ten commandments to teach them how they were to live before him as the covenant people of God. He is the one who said to them that the essence of the law is this, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so the heart and the essence of this holiness is to love God and neighbor. And the essential fruit of this, the summary of it, is the Ten Commandments. These are the standard of judgment, the moral requirements of holiness, the ethical standards of his people, and the righteous character that Solomon commends. So how do we enjoy, how would we follow this and not let this go along the line of just self-indulgence and the foolishness of youth is to realize that we are to follow the desires of the heart and of the eyes, but without sin, but not in a way that places something before God, not in a way that takes the affections of our hearts and makes them more set on These things are desires of our heart than on God himself. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not take his name in vain. In other words, it should be reverenced. You shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall not worship the creation rather than the creator. You shall live with a humble view of your situation in life and honor your mother and father. You should enjoy all of these things, but not in a way that produces dishonesty, immorality, covetousness, and so forth, anger, and jealousy, and bitterness, and a lack of forgiveness. Those also become then the test of when our enjoyment of these things has crossed the line and is not as God intended them, when we see those things produced in our heart. So the encouragement to follow your desires is with the understanding that the desires are righteous and will be accountable to a righteous evaluation. Secondly, It means this, regarding what judgment he is referring to. Well, God's judgments come in a variety of ways, don't they? Sometimes God's judgment is simply by letting us bear the natural consequences of sin. He who sows to the flesh will reap from the flesh. He who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit. There's a a moral reality built into the universe and into God's image-bearing creatures that contains its own blessing or punishment. In Romans 1, those who sin sexually received within their own bodies the due penalty of their error. It's built into this world. You step outside of God's design, you step outside of nature, it's going to come with its own consequences. And there are a thousand ways that that works itself out. That's a a way that God has built judgment into this world. God judges sometimes by bringing frustration to all of our efforts. The book of Haggai, you plant, but you're not sowing. You expect all of these good things from your effort, and it comes to nothing. Why? Because you have misplaced priorities. And so he simply lets us experience the frustrations of life. Sometimes he kills by plague, and there are thousands and tens of thousands that die at one time because of the sins of his people. Sometimes he does it that way. Sometimes he judges by bringing a break in the tribes and he judges Solomon by letting his son Rehoboam act foolishly and then put the northern tribes up north and leave Judah in Jerusalem. And he brought fraction among the people of God. Sometimes he judges that way. Sometimes he judges by taking a nation and destroying them and letting the temple lay in ruins and then moving them out of their homeland into a foreign land where they are held prisoners and removed from the very presence, the representation of the presence of God. Sometimes he judges that way. There's a lot of ways that God brings his judgment into this world. Sometimes 
It is just directly by death when fire came out and consumed Nadab and Abihu. These things would be fresh in the memory of Solomon. But what judgment is he referring to here? Certainly, each of these kind of judgments are ultimately included in this statement. However, the focus here seems to be on the future, on the future, the judgment that takes place after the entire scope of one's life has been presented for evaluation. In other words, the final judgment, the judgment that follows death. Solomon has hinted at this earlier in chapter 3, verse 17. He said, I said to myself... Well, let me verse 16. Furthermore, I have, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I say to myself, listen, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. And it certainly isn't a judgment that is always seen here because he says again then in chapter 8, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the hearts of the son of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, that's Psalm 73, they strut about in arrogance, they strut about in blasphemies against God, and yet they're fat and they have no troubles in life and everything seems to go well with them. He picks up that idea here. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his days, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God and for fear him openly. Why? Because there is an accountability at the end of the day. He says this again at the very last verse. We'll get here next week. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God will bring every act to judgment. So what judgment is he referring to here? He's referring to this ultimate accountability, this ultimate end where even from Solomon's Without the clarity that we have in light of the the appearing and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who yet knew that in the end, righteousness and trust in God would be good and better for the soul than to act wickedly and to flourish in this world, but without reference to the righteousness of God. Why? Because there is an ultimate accountability. That's why. And that's what he's looking forward to here. It's not an accountability that we can observe always in this world. Sometimes God accentuates his judgment and we see that. But very often we don't. There are a lot of wealthy, happy, contented people who die outside of Christ. And who only know the foolishness of their choices and the consequence of their rejection when they stand before God in accountability. That's the rich, the rich man in Lazarus. He received his good things while he was here on earth. He walked around in luxury. He had purple robes and fine clothes and fine houses and vacation and honor and reputation among men. He had his good things. God doesn't deny that. You did have good things. Ah, but then there's accountability. And you realized that there is a price to pay for the enjoyment of those things without reference to God. That's again where Solomon points us. And that rich man was now in a state that for eternity he was bearing those consequences and said, oh, if, if Lazarus could just pass over, just pass over and give me a, a drop of cool water from my tongue. Enjoy these things, but realize that these things are to be enjoyed righteously and enjoy these things, but know that God will bring you to accountability. Now this brings up another issue then, doesn't it? It brings up another issue. And that is this, none of us have enjoyed these things perfectly. All of us have failed, all of us have slipped over and crossed the line into idolatry. So how can we not live then in the fear that we will yet stand within the judgment of God? Because again, Solomon is writing this as one who is a member of the covenant nation of God. And even within the old covenant, it was understood that God had provided an atonement for sin. Right? That's the day of atonement that God had built into the very life and rhythm of his people. Is that there was a day of atonement in which the sins of the people were confessed and then laid on a goat who was killed and then on another one who went outside of the camp and bore those sins away out into the wilderness, removing them from the presence of the people of God, picturing both 
expiation and propitiation. We've talked about those terms. That sin is both atoned for, the wrath of God is averted, and it is also removed from his people. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And they understood as well that the atonement pictured in those sacrifices and the daily sacrifices, guilt offerings and so forth, were not ultimately the way that God atoned for sin. They were a picture of it and faith in them was essential to the old covenant saint, but they weren't ultimately the provision. In his prayer of repentance, you remember these words, David said, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And even though this is after Solomon, this would take on its greatest clarity in the promise of the one who would suffer, who would suffer for his people, the servant. He himself will bear the sins of many. He will offer himself as a guilt offering, and he will see his offspring. But we have to understand this judgment ultimately in the light of the work of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, beloved, when Christ suffered as an atoning sacrifice, he completely satisfied God's judgment for your sin, for everyone who trusts in him. He satisfied it. He said at the end of his suffering, it is finished. It says that we have, the writer of Hebrews, been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Paul said to the Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul said to the Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sin of every believer in Christ has been fully, completely, 100% atoned for and satisfied in Christ. We have been justified by faith. His perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience is credited to our account who have trusted in him And the righteous justice of God for our sin was placed fully on him. So when we say this, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things, we do not read this, even a righteous Old Testament saint or us as new covenant believers, as understanding that there is somehow a, 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 a scales and a balance like in the religion of Islam. Hopefully my good will outweigh my bad. He'll bring me to judgment. Hopefully I had more righteous enjoyment than wicked enjoyment. But then if that is the case, we still have to ask ourselves, then how then do I take this judgment? Do I then throw that off? Do I simply say it doesn't matter? Do I simply say that when he says, no, that God will bring you into judgment for all of these things, but Christ has borne my judgment, therefore I don't fear judgment, and so therefore I don't have to take much concern? Is that the logic of Scripture? Some could take it that way, foolishly and wrongly. How then do we read this kind of statement to say that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things? As a believer in Christ, knowing that our righteousness is fully, is fully credited to us because of Christ and that we are in union with him and that we are covered by him and that his life is our life and nothing can change that or take that away. How then are we to read this? Well, first of all, We get help, of course, from the clarity of the New Testament. Paul says this, if you are a believer in Christ, that does not mean, it means that you will never experience the eternal condemnation for your sin, ever, never. Nothing left to pay, nothing left to bear. The justice of God has been completely satisfied. That's the idea of propitiation. So that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is the idea of propitiation? You'll remember the idea of propitiation is namely this. That Christ averted the wrath of God by bearing it in himself. And he averted it from us. He moved it away from us. He satisfied it so it's no longer on us. He bore it. But... That doesn't mean that we are free from any accountability to God. It means we're free from any fear of the ultimate judgment of God, but not having to give an account for our lives. For 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all, he's writing to the church, 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, the New Testament doesn't escape this either. There's a judgment even for believers. And this judgment, however, is not for ultimate salvation, but the result of gain or loss of rewards. And the reality is as well, that while there is eternal joy for believers, while there is internal, eternal commitment and satisfaction for believers in the presence of God, the believer is concerned not to be ashamed when Christ returns. Not to live in such a way that we would be ashamed when Christ returns. Listen to what 1 John says. As his anointing, or now little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, this is referring to the parousia, his coming, his second coming, when he appears in the glory of the Father with all of his holy angels, when he appears, we may have confidence and, listen, not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Hmm. But then here's another qualifier, and again, you hear the echoes of Solomon. For if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, there is a sense in which a believer still stands before God and feels, even after death, can feel the shame of a life not lived. In that moment, it's not an eternal shame. In that moment of when he returns, is oh, my life is not what it should be though ultimately he will restore that and we will live in joy with him forever. But there is also the reality, and here's the echo of Solomon, to say that these delights are not just random delights. Again, it is the one who is righteous who shares and models the righteousness of Christ. Love you. you know if he is righteous, then the one who is born of him practices righteousness. In other words, there comes the life and then the fruit of righteousness, the reality of regeneration, and then the fruit of of a righteous life. So believers are not exempt from this. We take seriously that God will bring our lives before him with an accountability. But the motivation, and here is the key difference in this, the motivation for the believer to fear this judgment is, you ready? Love for Christ. The believer doesn't want to disappoint him. The believer wants to offer him a life that is to his pleasure. The believer says, I want to honor him who has saved me. That is the greatest fear in a believer's heart is that the life could be lived in a way that dishonors Christ and the judgment would reveal that. Though ultimately they know their soul is secure. But for an unbeliever, of course, it is a different story. The unregenerate will stand before God. Note we say here the unregenerate, not the unreligious. The unregenerate will stand before God bearing the full weight of his or her sin and receive the full justice and wrath of God for eternity. That's a measure on this well for any who would want to see this as an unrestrained exploration of all the desires this world has to offer that Scripture warns about. You can do that, and unbelief does do that according to its own desires, but realize this, that all will be judged and stand before the great white throne seat of God and the books will be opened, and their deeds are written in them, and they will be adjudged according to their deeds. So if you are here and you don't know that you're regenerate, and you have not yet experienced the saving grace of God, or that you think you do, even though your life is lived outside of God's righteous purposes, even though you're not dealing with sin, you're not among God's people, fellowshipping with them and using your gifts as God designed to build up the church, if you have no interest in that, if you're living your life according to self-will and not seeking to bring it under the will of Christ, then that's the warning. There is a judgment. And it is... The wisdom that, that Christ himself to his apostles says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But with that being said, that tempered, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things, he gives a final word here. Let me say this quickly in verse 10. And it's lay hold yet of life's opportunities and don't be overly burdened with the disappointments of life. It's an encouragement. 
He says in verse 10, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And here's the conclusion. Life has sorrow. Life has disappointments. Life has many confusing aspects to it and hardships. These are the inevitable consequences of living in a fallen world. Grief, anger, vexation, you could even say, frustrations are a part of this world. But he says, don't let them be the dominating realities or governing influences in your life. Put them in the perspective of God's providence, his secret will in this world. Do not let them overshadow the good things and the innumerable mercies that attend your life. And do not let them rob you of the joy and opportunities that come with youth and the ends because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So in other words, enjoy the blessings of youth, but use the energy, the vitality, the opportunities to know God, to serve others, to develop habits of righteousness that will carry you into old age with wisdom and blessing. Or in the words of Paul to Timothy, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. So if you're young and wherever we are in life, enjoy life, But know that your decisions will carry consequences far beyond the moment and carry you into your old age, which is where he'll take us, and ultimately be accountable to God. So here's where I want to end with this illustration. Uh, This idea before as we come into the table. And and here's, here's what it is. That one of the most beautiful statements of holiness in, in all of Scripture of God's original creation. There's, of course, the vision of the majestic view of Christ that John saw. There is, of course, as was referenced earlier, I think in Jason's prayer about the angels flying around, the vision of God that Isaiah saw, the vision of the pre-incarnate Christ singing, holy, holy, holy. But in terms of human relationships, in terms of that, that purity and that innocence, as it were, that 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 unsullied goodness of creation. One of those beautiful statements is found in Genesis 2.25. And and it's in reference to the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. And it says this, they were both naked and unashamed. They were both naked and unashamed. Think about that. That is the very last statement of the creation account to put an exclamation point of the goodness of God and the holiness of God in all that he had made. That statement is a beautiful statement of the purity and the goodness and the delight that God had created humanity to know without sin. There was nothing in them to cause them shame. There was no illicit or selfish desire. However, when sin entered into the world, all of that changed. Nothing outside of them changed. The garden was still the garden. They were still standing where they were standing. The tree was still the tree. The dirt was still the dirt. Whatever had grown had still grown. In that moment, nothing outside of them had changed. But they viewed each other differently because something inside of them had changed. They viewed the world differently. They viewed each other differently. They felt the corruption within themselves and what was pure, holy, and good and desirable now became a matter of corruption and danger. But here's the glory of it. And this is where Solomon ultimately points us. And remember that throughout Solomon, the background is always either explicit or implicit, this reality of creation and fall. Genesis 1 through 3. And here is the glory, and this is what's found in Genesis 3, that redemption brings the restoration of all things to God in Christ. So how do we ultimately know with the world, with all of its ups and downs, with all of the griefs and angers and vexations, with the reality of death, with the corruption of sin, how are we ultimately able to enjoy these things? One is when they're not an end in themselves, but God is. But number two is to realize that for the redeemed and the redeemed people of God, they can be enjoyed truly because they can be enjoyed where the end of them is delight in God himself. And in that sense, they become then foretaste of all of the promises of God. All of the goodness of God that he has stored up for his people. All the blessings of God that will attend the kindness that is to be lavished on his people for all eternity. They point us to that day in which sin will never be anymore among God's redeemed people. To corrupt his good things. 
And the external beauty of the new heavens and the new earth will be matched by an unsullied inward beauty in every way. And here is the thing. That is the only condition where our capacities for pleasure, which God has created us for, can be fully experienced and known. God's created us with an amazing capacity for pleasure. But it can only be fully known when sin is removed, but it will be ultimately and fully and will be forever united to our creator in Christ and will be in his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And so really what this section highlights is the inbreaking of those realities, the inbreaking of those true pleasures, the encouragement to take hold of those things that point us to something beyond themselves, which namely God himself, his goodness, his character, his redemption, and the promise for all of those who trust in him for those who believe him. The true harvesting of this world for all of the good things God has endowed it with. But in that light as well, it's not as though it's just all of these good things. If God is the end in himself, then ultimately the true enjoyment and the true blessing of these things, of the good things that God exhorts us to enjoy is found in our use of them that will end in his glory. The crowns that we can lay down at his feet. The ways that we can say all of these good things were enjoyed as gifts of your goodness, but to the end that you might ultimately receive the glory in them from a life that you purchased with your own blood. Let's end with this as we come into the table. Therefore, he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And as we come to the table... We are reminded of this kingdom and of these realities and of these promises. As we come to the table, we are reminded that Christ has atoned for our sin. We do not come as perfectly pure people who have no need of... Thank you.